Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest is an Ivy League-educated author and a professor who teaches screenwriting and television and film. He started his writing career on the acclaimed Showtime series Soul Food. After a short stint in Hollywood, he transitioned to authoring a series of sci-fi books, The Unveiling and the Adventures of Zoku. He's going to share his story, his imagination, and his new upcoming very exciting projects with us today. Welcome, Kevin Collins. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're just going to get into it, okay? Yes. Yes. No, we don't do that. Okay. So, you know, what is the greatest lesson you were taught as a Black child that you still hang on to today as a Black man? Well, it's interesting you say that. I don't, I wish I had an answer to that. I, you know, my mom passed away, but I loved her dearly. Mm-hmm. And she was an activist. And she, I think a lot of who I am today is because of her and my dad, obviously. But I remember watching Roots, right, when it first aired. And not really, I think those were the first images I saw of like that kind of brutality mm. on TV. And I just remember asking my mom, why are they doing that? And she said her answer, it, I think it was the best answer she could give, but it, it was something along the lines of sometimes black people just have to go through things, you know, it's just some of the things that you have to suffer. And I remember thinking even at that age, cause I don't remember exactly how old I was, nine or 10, that that's not an adequate answer. Mm. That always stuck with me that, you know, that's I think what a lot of black people took for granted, you know, that this is just our plight, you know what I mean? And this is just what we have to live with. And we didn't really delve deeper into the whys. So I didn't really answer your question, I guess, because it's no, kind of, it's something that I learned that I didn't really accept. And it took me a long time to start to put that together. I was telling somebody this story the other day that it's like I took a housing policy course at UCSD Mm -hmm. at the University of California, San Diego, when I was an undergrad. And the idea of the trickle-down theory Mm -hmm. is the first thing that kind of introduced sort of the concept that it wasn't about blackness, right? Mm -hmm. That it was about like socioeconomics. And that if you start in slavery, you can't really get any lower than that. And so, you know, if you're building up from that, like that's, you know, that was the first idea that I had that like sort of what I was being told about black people wasn't really the right narrative. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I I actually think you answered it perfectly. I mean, it's something that you decided wasn't going to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that stayed with you. And man, as soon as you said that, it's like, oh, I've heard that, you know, it's. Yeah. Well, and I, I think those are the tools that our parents were given. You know what I mean? It's like, it was bad for them. You know what I mean? And what were the explanations that they were given? This is the thing. I'm trying to incorporate this in my book, and I'm not sure if I'm going to figure out a place to put it. But I think I was about 19. 
And my mother said to me, tomatoes don't taste like tomatoes anymore. And I said, what does that mean? Because we were in the kitchen making lunch or something like that. We were both making different things. And I said, what does that mean? And she goes, I don't know. Tomatoes just don't taste like tomatoes anymore. Now, what does that mean to you? Because I walked away confused, like, well, what does it taste like? Like, this is what tomatoes have always tasted like to me. So it wasn't until I was probably maybe five or six years later, we were traveling abroad and we went to some, you know, swanky restaurant or whatever. And the guy who owned the restaurant had his own garden that he put a lot of the produce from his garden into the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he came with this tray of assorted tomatoes that were sliced up. And I ate some of those tomatoes and the flavors were something I had never tasted before. And I was like, this is what my mom was talking about. But it made me realize in 19 years, there's something that I didn't know that my mother knew. It only takes a few generations to not know anymore. That's the... Does that make sense? So I'm thinking about Hong Kong, for example, and how they're having a lot of their rights taken away. These kids that are alive today, you know, who are too young to realize what's going on, are going to grow up, if China is successful, which it looks like they're going to be, they're going to grow up not knowing sort of the rights that they had sort of revoked by China. They just won't know. You know, that's in, you know, one generation. Yeah. So the idea that I could be 19 years, 19 years old and not know what a tomato tastes like is kind of deep to me. And I yeah. think that's how what I call the you know, white supremacy playbook works, right? It's like you get taught these concepts of, oh, you just have to deal with this. This is just your plight. And then you accept it. And then to agree the work that white supremacy has to do, you're doing it for them, right? Because you've accepted it. Yeah. And yeah. so it's a lot about not only unlearning, but sort of learning that what you learn needs to be unlearned. Yeah, and I think you said it when you said the idea that um, you didn't know what you didn't know until you knew it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what happens with marginalized communities. Yeah. They know what they don't know. You know, I learned that when I worked in one of the most affluent communities in the country was it's all about access. We call right. it capitalism, but it's really access. It's, right. it's, it's knowing what you don't know so you can know better. Right. Or more, not necessarily better, but more. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see these kinds of... I don't remember the name of the family, but there was a a man in Austria who had locked his daughter in a basement. Do you remember that story? Yes. He had her down there for years and he was sexually assaulting her and she was having babies. And so some of those babies grew up in that cave. It was a cave essentially. And they grew up in that cave and it's like, I don't think they're going to let the public know who those kids are, but imagine that, Everything you know is from the TV. Yeah. Because a lot of those kids, I think, were like eight, nine. I mean, some of them were like older and they, they'd only seen a car on TV. They'd only seen flowers on TV. As far as I know, they only saw the sunlight on TV. And so there's so much that you really won't know about coming out of that. And to a degree, that's what you know, African people had done to them. They were taken away and stripped of their humanity and then you know they started having babies who were raised in slavery and so then what you don't know any different yeah so So you believe the things that are that you're being told about yourself because you know that's what we do we believe what we're taught yeah yeah we don't know to well increasingly thanks to tiktok (laughs) 
Right, right. More people are actually confronting what they didn't know. I think that's been the most beneficial aspect of that that piece of social media is that it's like they're trying to one up each other with knowledge, you know, doing their own version of critical race theory, which is excellent. I mean, I love supporting that because there's so much about American history that people don't know. And like you said, believe what we're told because. Right. What what else? Right. (laughs) There, you know, and there weren't any real mechanisms to like. Yeah. Figure a lot of that stuff out. Yeah. And who was going to fight? Who was going to try to, you know, risk being killed to tell the truth? No, it's not worth it. So, you know, you lived in Africa for a while. Yeah. How long did you live there? I was there like full time for two years. My parents were there for about 10. I guess my mom was there for about eight. My dad was there for about 10. Is there any inspiration that came from that that sort of impacted your journey? Yeah, definitely. It didn't. I I wasn't aware what those impacts were until much later because, you know, you know, I let my father read a draft of my book and he kind of apologized because he was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know you went through that much trauma. And I didn't necessarily think that that's how he was going to interpret the story that I told, but like you might imagine, I wasn't happy when he said we're moving to Africa Mm -hmm. and he had been saying it for a couple of years, like we're going to move to Africa, you know, get ready. And then a year went by. It's like, we're going to move to Africa, get ready. And another year went by. So then I thought it was just some story he was telling. I, I don't know why, but I stopped believing it. And then the next thing, the following year, it was like, okay, we're packing up. And so we went over there. It took me a while to realize like a lot of sort of my attitudes about just people in general and socializing, like were formed probably over there to a great degree because I went to an international school over there. So all of a sudden I was with many French students, many African students, some German students, British students, like people from all over. And culturally it was just really different in a lot of ways. And so I think it made me aware of possibilities, you know what I mean? For ways in which people can live in different ways. Right. The American lifestyle is something that's, you know, it can change from state to state, but it's still something kind of specific. You know what I mean? So if you go to a different country, they may live very differently, you know, even if it's still a Western country. And so you start thinking about possibilities. So I realized, like, I push back against a lot of sort of American ideas because I've seen that you can live in different ways that are actually better. <laughs> You know what I mean? We think that what we have over here is the best way, but it's not always the best way. The other thing I think that kind of pertains to that, so I don't know if you remember my dad's from Trinidad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I had African friends when I was over there. I consider myself American, but I have a West Indian side of the family. And so there are divisions among Black people that probably shouldn't be there. You know what I mean? So it's like, I thought the same thing, so I can't really fault Americans. But when I told friends I was going to Africa, and then the first year, because we would come back every summer, oh, and the first summer that I came back, I got asked a lot of questions that I was asking before I went to Africa the first time. Some of them being, do you have running water? Do you live in a hut? <laughs> Is there electricity? 
You know what I mean? And I had a lot of those questions before I went over there, but it's like, yes, we had all those things. And so, of course, Africans get a little chip on their shoulder because their thing is Black Americans are ignorant. Like, they should know these things about Africa, and we don't. So that's a problem that some African people have with Black Americans. And then Caribbean people, it's, it's a similar thing. They have their chips on their shoulders about Black Americans and Africans. And so it kind of is this sort of circular thing where we create these divisions. And well, and it's, it, me, it's all fed by, you know, colonization. I mean, yeah. it works. It yeah. works for the colonizer. That's why I say it's like, you know, we're doing a lot of the work for white supremacy on our own. We're doing a pretty good job on our own. But for me, those barriers, I don't, living in Africa and, you know, having family in the Caribbean and growing up in the States, it's like, I don't see a lot of those barriers. They've come down for me. And so I see the commonalities because they're, when I say that there are divisions, there are also commonalities. Mm -hmm. So I can go to, like when I went to visit Roger in London, mm-hmm. we had his neighbor downstairs is from Nigeria. He has friends who are, were born, they're black, but they were born in the UK. Some are of Jamaican descent. And so it's this kind of African diaspora of people from all over, including me. There was another American guy there. And we all sat in a room and we were talking about racism. And it's like, even though we were from different countries and different continents, the conversations were the same. Wow. The struggle is still the same, you know, no matter where you go. Because white supremacy is the same, right? It's pervasive. And so that was kind of interesting to me that those commonalities were still there, even though those divisions can be there. But I think the more you travel, the more people you meet from different places, then all those barriers start to come down, not only within the black community, but just, you know, in general. You know, that would have been a great conversation to have recorded. Yeah, it would have been. That would have been pretty incredible. Because there was no real arguments, you know? Right, right. When I talk about racism in London, you know what I mean? It sounds like racism here. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, that's what, you know, people people always find it strange, particularly from the white community who, when I say, you know, I have to know what the makeup is of the place I go to because I have to know what their racism looks like. Right. We can't just close our eyes and pick a place to travel. Right. You know, There's right. a lot of thought process and planning that has to go to it and through it and, you know, and, and like preparation. That's the reason why, because it's, it's there. Right. Don't be well, and my mom used to say that there's sort of an extra component with many white Americans. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told you the story, but she, I, she said she got on a plane one time. And there was another passenger, you know, a white passenger who just was glaring at her with like a lot of animosity. And she said she didn't, she said, it's not that you don't see racism in Europe or you know, in other places, but there's like an extra component when it's an American people. And so and I knew what she meant, I guess, intuitively. It's hard to say like intellectually, like what that is, but I was traveling abroad again and I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was abroad and I was hungry and I went to a Burger King. This was in Italy. <laughs> and, you know, they're upstairs, downstairs. And so I, I think I had to go upstairs to order. So I went upstairs and there was a group of four people at a table and they turned around and they glared at me with such animosity that I immediately went, they must be American. Wow. And so I made a point when I got my food to go sit at the table right next to them because I wanted to hear what language they were speaking. And they were American. 
<laughs> and so I'm like, that rule kind of stands up. Yeah. I think it's slavery. Mm-hmm. That's a theory. I don't know. But I think it's like when you had hundreds of years of feeling like you could own people, mm-hmm. it adds a, a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's bravado, but there's something, mm-hmm. there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. And well, Rezma talks about that. Rezma Mekin talks about that. The idea of, you know, the white community doesn't realize what it inherited from the trauma of racism. And that's part of it. That's this innate, deep belief that you have rights to people. Right. Right. And that's tough. Yeah. I have a person, are you, if you believe that? You know, when I put that in my book too, the collateral damage of like white supremacy, it's like a lot, you know, we always think about how that affects, you know, black people and other people of color, but it's, you know, it's had a huge negative impact. So I, I had a student who took my class for writing fiction and she contacted me after the class ended and she said, you know, I have a nonfiction idea and I want to share it with you and maybe you can consult and give me some feedback on it. And I said, okay, send it to me. So she sent it to me, but I was really busy at the time. So I told her I wasn't going to get to it. I didn't even acknowledge that I saw it, but I didn't send her an email saying that I got it. Mm-hmm. And she started emailing me. I don't, she probably wouldn't want me to share this story, <laughs> but she started emailing me in a little bit of a panic saying, did you get my email? And so I said, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I've been really busy. I'm sorry to respond. I got it. And she was like, okay, good. I just, you know, I just wanted to confirm that you got it. Right. So when I read the piece, it was about her grandfather who had, when he was 16, he went hunting with his father and he shot a black person who I guess was in this wooded area and killed, killed him. Oh. And it was an accident, you know, so she was told it was an accident. But, but that's why it was so personal to her that she felt like maybe I read it and I got triggered or something like that and I hadn't really read it yet. But she was saying that he got no counseling, that he... This happened on a weekend and her grandfather, you know, his father held him home on Monday and sent word to the school that nobody should ever ask him what happened. And so he never was able to deal with the fact that he did this thing. You know, today that's unheard of. If you, you know, were at a school shooting or if you had somewhere where trauma happened, they would be like, you need counseling, you know, right away. But it's like... You know, and you see those horrific pictures of lynchings where people came out and celebrated and they're watched. You know, that's trauma. There are a lot of times there are kids there. You know, what's tough about that for me, and I was thinking this when I was rereading his book, you know, I know that's true. And I know that the white community needs to be exposed to that and educated about that. And I'm not the one. That's understandable. And the point is not for you to be the one. The point is for them to acknowledge that to figure it out. It may seem like, you know, white supremacy is this great thing that gets you good jobs and gets you nice houses. There's a flip side to that. Yeah. It's very damaging that, I mean, it's not for black people to look at that for them. But no, that's, that's too much. You definitely point out that it's something you should look at. I can teach other stuff. I can't teach that. <laughs> <laughs> Kev, I want to I wanna shift gears for a minute and just talk about your personal journey. You've dealt with a lot. You've been through a lot. What do you think has taught you, I know it's hard to say the most, but what has taught you the best or most efficient navigational skills around dealing with the barriers, challenges, obstacles that you've overcome? Well, besides your innate resilience. Yeah. 
you were there when you know I got diagnosed with you know, thyroid cancer, and that's still an ongoing thing mm -hmm. that I'm dealing with. And then my mom passed, and it's like you know those are life-altering events. So it's weird. It's almost like I had books on my bookshelves that I hadn't read that all of a sudden I started reading that you know had a little bit more of a spiritual slant. You've met my friend Thomas, right? Yeah, of course. So. Thomas called me after I got diagnosed and said that he knew of a guy who had been diagnosed with cancer and had gone on this retreat to Hawaii and had gotten cured just by the lifestyle that he was sort of told to lead while he was in Hawaii. Okay. And he said, I should look into it. And, it, you know, I was open to that. So I called this retreat and they said, you can only go to Hawaii if you go to a retreat in Europe first, because they have this like series of retreats that happen in different places in Europe. So that's one retreat that I went on. The other retreat that I went on, you can actually do in a lot of different places there in California. I think there's one center in Georgia it's called Vipassana Meditation. Yeah, I've heard of that. And so a friend of mine in LA had tried to get me to go to a retreat. I think it's out in near 29 Palms. They have a center. <clears throat> and he tried to get me to go, but it's like a 10-day silent retreat. And I thought, 10 days I would have to take, you know, almost two weeks of vacation to go on a silent retreat. It just didn't sound attractive. <laughs> and so I didn't do it. But when I ended up getting laid off and I moved, I went on that retreat. And really the Vipassana retreat, the, I ended up not going to Hawaii. Oh, okay. I decided I would do that retreat again, but I decided it wasn't for me. The Vipassana retreat really, I think, planted some ideas in my head about coping, how to cope, what are the things that cause people to, you know, live in suffering. Mm. And so I don't know if you want me to go into detail about some of that. The overall, you know, idea behind the teaching is that suffering comes out of attachment. Mm. I've heard that, yeah. Suffering comes out of attachment. Yeah. So if you get attached yeah. to an idea or a person or a thing, that suffering can come out of that attachment. And so Vipassana is about learning how to rework how your brain works with attachment because we're dealing with attachment constantly. Like I might be sitting here and if I shift like that, you know, it's because I'm attached to being comfortable. Yes. You know what I mean? So one of the tools that they give you is, you know, you're meditating, but they, they challenge you to do it one hour each day to get into one posture and to stay in there for an hour. It's not easy, but you, but it's a, the idea of commitment. And so there's a story that's told in that retreat about a woman in India who's very distraught on the sidewalk and she's an older woman and she's sobbing and she's really distraught and people say, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she had a purse and she said, all of my belongings were in this purse and I lost it. And they said, well, what was in the purse? And she said, $600, something like that. So they went around town and they, they did a collection and they collected $600 and they gave her the $600 and she burst into tears again. And they're like, what's wrong? And she was like, there was a watch in that purse. You know, it was a watch that my father gave me. And they were like, well, what kind of watch was it? And she told them what kind of watch it was. So they went and they did another collection and they, they bought that watch. And they gave her the watch and she burst into tears again. And they said, what's wrong now? And she said, this is not the watch my father gave me. The one my father gave me is the one that's important to me, right? 
And it was the idea of attachment, right? Even though they gave her the exact same watch, she was attached to what her father gave her. And it still caused her to suffer that she had lost that particular. That's a great great story. And so, you know, we get attached to things that we don't even realize we're attached to. The temperature, you know, it's like, in the summer here, you walk into, you know, Starbucks and it's freezing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's my attachment to not wanting to be in cold weather, you know, <laughs> in cold temperatures. So, um, so the, the practice is kind of about learning how to unwire your brain to like think in that way. You know, I remember hearing about it, but having you explain it at this point in my life sounds amazing. The law that they use to sort of teach this idea is called Anicca. And Anicca is the law of impermanence. And it basically teaches you that everything is impermanent. Like there's always change. So another example they give in the retreat is if you go to a river and you wade out into the water and you stand still in the water, you feel like you're standing still and nothing's changing, right? But water's rushing around you. It's changing at every moment. Like the water that's around you in one second is not around you anymore. And it's constantly changing or, you know, even the idea that from the time a child is conceived, you know, the ovum starts to divide mm. into cells and it's constantly changing all the way through to you age and die. You know what I mean? Yes. So you're constantly in flux. You may look at yourself and think, I look the same, but you're constantly changing. Absolutely. And so, you know, once you accept that that change is inevitable, you will weigh the good and the bad equally. Love it. Right? Because you don't get attached to good things because they're going to change. And you don't get averse to bad things because they're also going to change. And then so you're supposed to look at them equally. It's a hard concept to like embrace. No, but I'm just in awe of how amazing it is and, how, and what a tool that was for you to support you in the navigation of, you know, life's barriers and challenges. And I just want to thank you so much for disclosing all that and sharing oh, no. it. It's just, it's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, with pleasure. So I think of you as a professor, as I think of myself, maybe that's just narcissistic mirroring and that's just what it is. But I also think that, you know, we're not big on textbook as textbooks as people, you and I. Right. There's right. a whole tool belt of teaching that has nothing to do with the text that we may or may not use. And we won't say we won't use it because there's a syllabi that we have to right. buy. Right. We're not going to incriminate ourselves. Right. But what do you think you teach your students that definitely doesn't come from the textbook that's important for their learning? Oh, just about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Give a theme. I hate to say that. I provide a book to kind of give them certain ideas, but I mean, that's a great question. And it's a hard one to like articulate. So I, I'll say for me, I learned more about storytelling and screenwriting as a teacher than I ever learned as a student. Yeah. And it, I think, you know, being put in a situation where I had to explain it made me had to figure out, like, how do I explain this? And so I had to really kind of get clear about it. And so... It took me a few years before I realized, like, wait a minute, I've gotten, like, I've really improved. Like, my evolution as a storyteller went leaps and bounds compared to taking classes. Part of that, I guess, is life experience. Mm -hmm. 
especially as a writer, it's like, you know, I was told when I first started writing, it takes 10 years to groom a writer. And I was like, 10 years, like, it's not going to take me 10 years. But I wasn't even sophisticated enough to realize that you have to have certain life experiences to like, you know, especially if you're writing fiction and you want to explain about loss, if you haven't experienced any major loss, you know what I mean? How are you going to express it on a story? Right. If you haven't experienced it. And so I'll say for, I don't know if you, I, I think I told you this. So my cousin in London, his mom passed away. My mom had a massive heart attack in front of me. Yeah. It's very traumatic. And my cousin, his mom had a massive heart attack in front of him probably about 13 years before my mom passed. And I called him and I apologized. And he said, what are you apologizing for? And I said, I didn't know this is what it was like. Mm. And I, mean, I didn't know what it, this is what it was like. And so he accepted the apology, but he was like, you know, you don't need to apologize. But it's, that's part of, you know, and I hate to say that, but that helped me in my writing, right? To have that kind of loss help me in my writing. So those are things that I don't know if you could communicate that in a textbook. Yeah. You can, you know, it's, you know, when you tell that story, I think, and it makes it more visceral than it Absolutely. probably would be in a textbook. So especially with screenwriting, it's because it's about storytelling. It's about, for my class, it really becomes about the writer's room. You know, it's about the collective experience of sharing experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can I can share some of those experiences, but other students, you know, the class is always better when they share it as well. I had a student reveal to the whole class that he caught his father on. (laughs) So I'm sharing too many secrets. People are I'm not going to say any names, but these people are going to know who they are. (laughs) At least you're you're not bound by confidentiality. Yeah. (laughs) So his his printer broke when he had an assignment and he went and asked his dad, can I borrow your printer? And the dad said, yeah. And so he pulled up, he was trying to pull up whatever site he was trying to print from. And when, you know, when you key in to a site, like your history might pop up. And so whatever he keyed in, a website popped up for married straight men who want relationships with men. Oof. And so he discovered his father had a profile on the site Oh, what and was, you know, seeking these same-sex relationships outside of his marriage. And then that became a whole thing. And so, you know, he shared that with the class. And then I thought it was, like, kind of brave of him to share that story. And then another student said, my, I caught my dad doing the same thing. The same thing. Wow. As- <laughs> so, became, hey, hey, Kev, it became a group therapy session. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think that's why students like my class, because the therapy sneaks up on them, right? I don't claim to run a therapy class at all, but if we have a student who's doing a story about drug addiction and there's a student in there who's dealt with drug addiction or who has a family member that's dealt with drug addiction, usually they're going to end up sharing that story. And they didn't come to class thinking they were going to share that story. They're going to end up sharing that story. And a lot of times it's cathartic to share that story because they might not have shared that story before. Mm-hmm. And so in my class, it's like, depending on what people are writing about, different topics get generated into the class. And I think a lot of people like the class because they can walk away feeling almost like they've had therapy. Mm. That's amazing. Know. That's yeah. amazing. So if you had anything to do over again, anything, just think about the span of your life thus far, what would it be and what would you do differently? 
I would not have done an MBA. Mm. I would have done a writing degree. Yeah, that's where your heart has always been. Yeah. The yeah. thing is, I didn't know until after I completed the MBA. Like, I that's remember- the thing about life, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just felt like that, you know, that those two years of grad school, you know, would have been perfect towards like sort of getting me a little bit further along mm-hmm. in my formation as a writer. Yeah. Um, and developing the connections that I needed to develop. So I was, you know, developing all the connections that I really was not going to, you know, avail myself of in the end. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to let Susie take over. Go for it, Suze. Hi, Kev. Hello. (laughs) I'm sitting here in my whiteness, and I'm thinking about what you said about the upstairs, downstairs Burger King. Right. And I'm feeling so complicit in the times that I've been overseas, and I've probably been one of those people at the table, so unaware of my privilege. Mm-hmm. at my place at that table. And so... Well, I, I, it's possible I can't answer that for you, but the energy that I'm getting from you, I'm guessing that you weren't complicit in that way, and you may have been complicit in a different way. Pretty insidious, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's that look that my mom was describing and that look that they gave me at that Burger King was... A look of really, like, if I could read their minds, I would assume that they were saying, your cat looks like mine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That they were saying, you have no right to be here. What are you doing here, you piece of dirt? You know what I mean? That's what that look kind of said to me. I don't know you, but from what I've seen of you, I don't know that that would have sort of been coming out of your spirit not that exactly but you know i'm 59 years old and so that stuff you talked about attachment that's that is deep that stuff is deep let's talk about your transition into your first book series because i never knew what this was so i'm sure many of our listeners don't what is sumerian psychology i read that your work is based in that or yeah, well, it's Sumerian mythology. So, um, oh, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, so I had gone out to, you know, when I got diagnosed, I went off of work for um, I don't know how many months, but at least six months. I didn't work because I was going through treatment. And then when I went back to work, that law of Nietzsche, everything had changed. They had moved my workspace to a different place. And I was sitting next to somebody who I knew, but not that well. But we were very friendly, and he had this fascination with sort of aliens, life on different planets. And so he would always send me these different links to stuff that he was looking at. And then I would look at them because I have an interest in that as well. And so eventually we discovered this whole sort of like internet universe about alien. Like if you're going to believe any of this stuff is true, how, would, how do these people know this? But it eventually led to something called the Book of Enki. Mm. And so Enki is a Sumerian god who supposedly there are tablets that were found. I guess, you know, Sumer was part of Iraq and I think Iran and Turkey. So I'm not sure if it was Iraq, but I think there are these tablets that were found. And there's a story that was on these tablets. And so I should remember his name. There's a guy, I think he's passed away, Sitchin. His last name is Sitchin. 
And he okay. supposedly has done the best job. A lot of people say he didn't do a great job, but at translating those tablets. And so he kind of had come up with what the story is. So when you basically start to look into the, the story of Enki, this book of Enki, it mirrors a lot of events in the Old Testament. So that kind of was for, I had the same reaction that you just had. I was like, well, wait a minute, because, you know, I was raised Lutheran, you know, I went to Bible study, I did all these things. And so, you know, I was taught, you know, you just have to have faith that these things are true. And so I didn't question them that deeply. But then when I started to read the Sumerian mythology and see not only that the stories are the same, but that some of the, the empty holes in the story in the Old Testament are actually answered in the Sumerian mythology. I just became really, really fascinated by it. Is that what drew you into it? That's what drew me into it, yeah. And so there's a flood story in there. There's an ark that's built, although the ark in Sumerian mythology was a submarine. The two of every species were actually embryos, which to me that made a lot more sense than having like a virtual farm on an ark. You know, so like an embryo bank. And so a lot of things that like, you know, you might think if you've studied the Old Testament, you might think, well, wait, how does this make sense? In that story, it makes more sense. And the only difference is it essentially has all the elements of the Old Testament, except if you take out God and you put in alien race. Uh, and so if you, if you really go back into the story of Genesis, I think there is a, um, some verbiage in there that says the sons of God came down and took human women as wives. And so that, I question that because in the Sumerian mythology, you know who the sons of God are, it tells you. <laughs> so they feel like the same story. That's kind of what inspired me. It's sort of the order of things. Yeah. 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 And speaking of the order of things and yeah. attachment, yeah. talk about your newest book that you're working on, right. The White Supremacy Playbook Decoded. Yes. Tell us about that. I think, you know, I mentioned like some of the things my mom told me about roots or whatever. It just, things have intuitively not made sense to me about sort of white supremacy and the way things work within that framework. And so I always had questions and my mom was a big influence on my life. So it's interesting. I, I think we're getting that. Well, I keep bringing that up. She one day brought a VHS tape to me. This is how long ago this was. And it said, Black Man and Endangered Species. It was a talk by Francis Welsing. Do you know who Francis Welsing is? Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard, it, heard the name. I don't know enough. So she, she was a psychiatrist and she taught at Howard University. I think she had a career before she taught, but she had some really controversial ideas. So this was a, a speaker series that she did, and it was it's called Black Men Endangered Species. But her theory was that white supremacy is driven by genetics. I'm gonna go listen to the series now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so her theory is that black genes are dominant and white genes are recessive. And so I do remember there's that. there's an inherent fear that white people have. Mm. because their their genes are recessive of black men, right? Because if white women, you know, I unfortunately had to do some research on white supremacy manifestos, and there's a lot of talk about replacement theory. Are you familiar with replacement theory? A little bit, not like you are. Yeah. So replacement theory is the idea that, you know, white people will be replaced by people of color through, you know, 
interracial marriage, immigration. Mm-hmm. There's a series of ways that, you know, there's a fear that white people are going to yeah. be. But the idea that white women are the mothers of the white race, which, you know, they are. You know. Yeah. And so if white women were to choose to, you know, have relationships with men of color, but black men specifically, like black men have the highest potential genetically to overpower white genetics, right? Because interracial children between, you know, whether it's a man or woman doesn't matter, but between blacks and whites usually results in brown skin children. And so the idea is that white supremacy is about a controlling white women. So there's a misogyny aspect because you cannot be allowed to have relationships with men of color. So the misogyny you know, component is the first component. And the second component is about really controlling men of color. Mm. And so I think when you look at sort of the history in this country and the way black men are treated, I mean, black people in general, but black men specifically, you can kind of see some of that framework going on of genetics. And Francis Wilson talks about that, how when there's an altercation with the police, usually you shoot the black man. And so she talks about that's because there's a fear. There's an inherent fear. And so I used to be fascinated with Big Cat Diaries on Animal Planet. Yeah. 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 (laughs) They had to talk about the buffalo and how if the buffalo stumbled onto a den of lion cubs, they would stomp them to death. And I thought, that's odd. But they said the buffalo understood that these cubs would grow up to become a threat. And so they were going to eliminate them, you know, wow. if they could. I do think that maybe there's a sense in white supremacy that, like, because we are the biggest threat genetically, that that's where the, the concept of they have to be controlled. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I question, you know, so if you follow her theory... And today, you know, I heard this theory, I think, when I was in my teens. That's when my mom gave me this VHS tape. I, today, I haven't heard a stronger theory that would explain sort of the racial hierarchy in the way that it's kind of built. You know, black women have it hard as well. But I think because white men desire black women, to some degree, it's not quite as hard. They're more comfortable having a black woman in the boardroom than a black man. Sure. You know? And so, so yeah, that is the idea of genetics. You are going to make me get on the computer. I could talk to you all day long. (laughs) Go on with it. Well, if you think about it, it's like somebody was on the radio. I'm so frustrated I haven't gotten this book out yet. They were on the radio, I think, yesterday. They said, why when there is, they were talking about a race riot where, I think it was in like 1905, in Atlanta, and it was a mob of white people who were attacking black people, and many black people got killed. The story, it was like similar to Emmett Till, to Black Wall Street, where it had to do with a white woman. There's usually a story at the center of a lot of these events where it's like a black man or a black child, you know, boy, has inappropriate behavior with a white woman, and then, you know, a white mob kind of goes crazy. And so that that idea, you can still kind of see it historically, right? How that plays out. Kind of? Yeah, Yeah, just a little bit. Okay, I honestly, we could talk to you all day long, but unfortunately, (laughs) there's this thing called time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we're running out of it. Okay. Okay. But 
Wow. Thank, I'm going to hand it back over to JD, but thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. It's good to meet you. So tell people where they can find you, your books, everything, because you've provoked so much, you know, thought and I'm sure feelings and people are going to want to know how to find you. So how can they find you? My books are on Amazon, so you can find them there. I have a site called The Unveiling Series, which I'm I'm going to have to do a a site as an author because obviously Mm. I can't put Zuko or the White Supremacy Playbook on that. (laughs) So I'm going to... At some point, I'm going to create a site. I don't have a name for it yet, but I'll definitely keep you posted once I launch the author site so I can get all these books up there. Excellent. And your Instagram handle? I have a KL Collins Facebook page, and there's an unveiling Facebook page. I should have an Instagram, but I don't have an Instagram yet. But you you will. Yeah, I will. (laughs) You know, I usually ask people at the end of the show how would you change the narrative or how are you changing the narrative? But I think you've spelled it all out. You're doing a lot to change the narrative. On a personal note, I love you so much. It's great spending time with you. You have to promise to come back and yeah. talk so much more because we were enthralled. And I'm pretty sure by the rate of Susie's head nodding, she was as enthralled <laughs> as that was. <laughs> right. right. No, I'll definitely come back. I'll keep you posted when I get this book together. And Peace. when it comes out, I'll come back. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Know that I love you so much. I really do. I love this you was too. A- I love you too. All right. All right. I'll talk to you soon. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at IM Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IMMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD.